Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 32, Jennifer Oliva, Discovering Forensic Fraud. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Jennifer Oliva. Jen is Associate Professor of Law and Public Health at West Virginia University College of Law, where she is also Director of the Veterans Advocacy Clinic. Jen teaches evidence, healthcare law and policy, and science and the law, among other things. Our podcast today features Jen's new article, Discovering Forensic Fraud, which is in the Northwestern University Law Review Online and is co-authored with her colleague, Valina Beattie. The article addresses the persistent issue of flawed forensic science in criminal trials, its root causes, and potential solutions. In particular, Jen suggests that broader implementation of criminal discovery rules could significantly empower criminal defendants in challenging forensic evidence. As it turns out, some states have actually imposed open discovery in criminal cases, and it'll be interesting to hear more from Jen about why those states adopted their discovery rules and whether they have been successful. Jen, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So your essay begins with a discussion of what I might term the Daubert gap, the fact that expert evidence seems to receive far more scrutiny in the civil context than in the criminal context. And of course, given the stakes involved, the gap seems exactly backwards from what we would normally expect. Can you tell us a little bit more about this Daubert gap? Yeah, and you stated that exactly correctly. My background is in complex civil litigation, and as I've started to work with criminal lawyers or look at habeas cases and evidence issues, the issue seemed to you know, raise its nasty head, which was that there was a dramatic gap between how expert evidence would be treated in any normal complex civil context versus how that evidence seems to be treated at the pretrial and trial stages of a criminal investigation and trial. So, for example, it's very, very difficult for a civil plaintiff to produce causation evidence that is accepted by a court in many contexts in the toxic tort environment. Civil defendants are very aggressive about putting on experts. They really contest the scientific evidence that plaintiff is proffering under the Daubert standard. And more likely than not, the civil defendant is successful in keeping that evidence out. But yet in the criminal context, we see evidence like bite mark evidence, uh, which is the example that we use in our essay, which is overwhelmingly been proven to be non-valid and unreliable. It comes in time and time and time again in the criminal case. So my piece of this essay was, why is this happening really based in surprise out of my civil litigation experience? One of the surprising things that I learned from the article was your example of Georgia. So Georgia actually has two separate rules governing expert testimony. There's Georgia Code 247707, which says that in criminal cases, experts on any question of science, skill, trade, or like questions shall always be admissible. And then there's Georgia Code 
24967.1, which applies effectively the federal Daubert regime in civil cases. Do you have any idea what led to this difference in the statutory regime in Georgia? Well, I'll tell you what I do know about Georgia, which is really fascinating. Georgia did not adopt the Daubert standard until 2005, and they codified Daubert by statute at that time. And we looked into that a little bit and found out that the impetus for adopting Daubert 2005 in Georgia was really tort reform advocates in the civil context, which got us curious what was the standard before 2005. And the standard before 2005 in both civil and criminal cases was a case called Harbor v. State. And Harbor v. State mitigates the criminal statute that you just talked about, where scientific evidence shall always be admissible. That's always been the criminal rule in Georgia. It's actually been the criminal rule in Georgia since the Civil War. And Harper versus State mitigates that rule a little bit. It's a 1982 Georgia Supreme Court case by actually allowing the trial judge to test the evidence under a very lenient standard. So the tort reformers in 2005 in civil law wanted Daubert because Daubert was considered to be a tougher standard. It was going to be harder for civil plaintiffs to get evidence in. But at the same time, the the Georgia legislature was very clear that although they were adopting Daubert, it would only apply in civil cases. Georgia then went on, interestingly enough, to become the 44th state to adopt the federal rules of evidence. The legislature enacted that in 2011, but it didn't go into effect until January 1st, 2013. And in that process, Georgia once again very clearly distinguished civil versus criminal scientific and expert evidence by saying we're adopting Rule 702 and Daubert in the civil context, but Harper versus State and 24-7-707, the shall always be admissible standard, still apply in the criminal context. And we've talked to some folks who are from Georgia that were involved in this, and you won't be surprised to hear that prosecutors across the state really put their foot down Georgia would not enact the federal rules of evidence unless they maintained the uh, statutory case law connection there, the more lenient standard for prosecutors to be able to get evidence in. What makes Georgia so unique in our view is that it's maybe the most honest state in the nation because it actually admits on its face that it has a far more lenient standard for scientific evidence and the admissibility evidence in the criminal context versus a civil context. And the remainder of the jurisdictions, frankly, just aren't as honest about it, even though that's how it works out in practice. So it's amazing. The Georgia story is effectively what's akin to a special interest story. And I guess that there's no real principal distinction between the civil and the criminal side? We don't believe that there's any principal distinction. And to allude to what you mentioned right at the outset, if the standard should be more lenient, we believe it should be in civil law, not in the criminal law, because the stakes are far lower. It's money or property dispute, etc. on the civil side, whereas it can be somebody's life and liberty on the criminal side. So it's very difficult to make the case that there's a legitimate justification for that distinction. Now, let me broaden the discussion a bit beyond Georgia to the Daubert gap in general. Mm -hmm. In your article, you reject several conventional explanations for the Daubert gap. What are those, and why did you and Valina decide to reject them? Two that I kept hearing over and over again were 
judges are just bad at evaluating scientific evidence. Lawyers aren't trained this way. We don't have formal scientific methodology backgrounds, and it's just too hard for courts. So for me, it was very difficult to listen to that coming from, like I said, complex civil litigation background and having never practiced criminal law, because I know what I'm up against in a civil Daubert hearing before the same exact judge in federal district court. So I automatically rejected that because of my personal experience. Moreover, the literature backed me up. Several studies, as you know, have been done on this, and virtually all of them come out to say, you know what, judges are way tougher in the civil context than they are in the criminal context, and they do really intense, serious evaluations under Rule 702 and Daubert in civil cases, particularly in products liability and the toxic tort context. So for me, that was an easy one to reject. The other one that's commonly bantered about is that all judges are former prosecutors or many judges are former prosecutors. And that is true. There's no question about it. The defense bar and the criminal side of the house is way underrepresented in judgeships across the nation, federal and state, from what we can tell. But again, that did not explain this gross distinction to me. They may be more favorable to prosecutors, but guess who else they're very favorable to on the civil side? Corporate defendants. To me, it was more about two other things. The gross distinction between civil discovery and criminal discovery, period. And second, this repeat litigant concept that we talk about in the paper and that have been raised by numerous other scholars over the last five decades. And again, the statistics sort of bore that out, that the corporate defendant and the government defendant tends to do well over and over again when scientific evidence is being proffered, and the prosecutor tends to do well over and over again. It seemed to us that these two aspects, these two issues were not being represented in the way that they should be in the literature. Their significance was sort of being undermined somewhat by these other sort of tropes about prosecutors and judges, and really that judges can't do science, which we completely disagree with. Let me push you a little bit on this repeat player argument, which I don't quite buy, or at least I'd like to limit in some ways. It seems that on the one hand, criminal defense attorneys are also repeat players in many ways. And on the other hand, short of some kind of coordinated effort among state prosecutors, they're also seemingly somewhat more decentralized than you and other people who are promoting the repeat player argument paint them to be. What's your response to that? I hear what you're saying, and I think that your point is well taken in the, let me talk about the civil side, is that civil plaintiffs are more successful than criminal defendants still. So again, the repeat player phenomenon, I think, is valid, and it's an important dynamic because of what we see in the statistics. One side always doing well, depending on what kind of case you have, civil or criminal. But I don't think that it's the end-all, be-all explanation of this. I, th- I really think that the more significant issue is the dramatic difference between what's available to the criminal defense lawyer versus any defendant on the civil side pretrial. I think that's the most significant issue. But the repeat litigant theory does tend to conform to the statistical studies that have been done in this arena where you do see that repeat player and the civil side do better and better and better. I agree with you that the variable that's difficult to explain there is the criminal defense attorney. One explanation that's been given for that is that the defendant themselves is different each time. It presents a dramatically different fact pattern, and these folks are sort of resource limited, so they aren't repeat players in their own interests in the same way as civil defendants are, where they're looking at the big picture. In each individual case, defense counsel is still looking to that individual defendant's best interest or ought to be 
whereas the corporate defendant is playing the long game. So that'd be my response to that. But I do concede that I think the discovery gap is the bigger problem. Let's turn to that discovery gap. With regard to discovery rules, we see a gap again. We see that in the civil context, discovery rules are really quite broad and often used. And in the criminal context, discovery is either limited or almost non-existent. Why the distinction there, at least in practice? Well, I don't know what the distinction is in practice because it seems to be fundamentally unfair, but I can tell you what the distinction is in theory, or at least what's been argued, is that in the criminal context, prosecutors have been very reticent to have two-way open discovery with criminal defendants based on several theories, almost all of them of which go to it gives the defendant some kind of unfair advantage. It gives them a chance to manipulate the evidence, to conform their story to whatever the prosecution may have gleaned in its investigation is one argument. It gives the criminal defendant the opportunity to witness intimidate if they find out who the state is going to put on in its case in chief too soon or too early in the proceedings. These are the kinds of things that have been said over and over again. Another trope that's been thrown out there is that criminal defendants have extraordinary rights at trial, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment rights, etc., and don't need any additional pretrial rights. And then that, again, that would tilt the seesaw way in favor of the criminal defendant at the expense of the state and public safety. As it turns out, none of these things seem very persuasive for a couple reasons. One is that even assuming all of those things were true when the majority of criminal disputes were decided at trial, that's not the case anymore. In 2016, over 97 percent of all criminal cases were decided at the plea bargain stage. And that's also true on the civil side. There's no question about it. So the real question here is that very few of these cases are tested with these trial rights in place for the defendant. And our argument is that civil law which has very similar statistics on settling and resolving cases pre-trial, have evolved so that the parties can learn the truth, get to accuracy, get information before the stage where the dispute is usually resolved here, which is be around summary judgment in civil cases, so that you, everything's out and you can present your case and resolve it that way. In the criminal context, we have not had any evolution or very little evolution to back these rights up into the pre-plea bargaining stage, which has caused a lot of defendants to take pleas who were later proven innocent beyond a reasonable doubt based on DNA evidence or other uh, forensic evidence that was revealed later in the case. Is there anything to an argument that criminal discovery would compromise certain police or prosecutorial investigative techniques or actual ongoing investigations. That is the only explanation that I could come up with for the distinction between broad civil discovery rules and relatively narrow criminal ones. That's a good point. And at this juncture, we would celebrate if that was the only exception. So if the exception was the state could go and in camera argue to the judge that we don't want to reveal this or we need to redact it for some reason. In the civil context, defendants all the time raise proprietary interests, privileges, trade secrets when the other side is asking for discovery. And those disputes are resolved by the trial judge through the normal civil discovery process. That doesn't get to the more significant problems that we have in the criminal justice system right now, which are a defendant can't get anything from a prosecutor effectively except for Brady evidence unless they ask for it. 
There's literally no automatic disclosure. There's no ability to depose an expert pretrial whatsoever in the current criminal system under the federal rules, at least under Rule 16. There's no requirement of timely disclosure of anything. We're so far away from the issue being the compromising law enforcement techniques that if the system was reformed and that was the uh, exclusion that was left behind, I would, for one, be in great favor of that system. One of the really interesting things that your article talks about is that several states have actually imposed open discovery in criminal cases. Can you tell us a little bit about those examples and what led those states to adopt those rules? Absolutely. The first state I'll talk about is my home state here of West Virginia. And West Virginia has gone the least far of the states that we actually discuss in the essay but has enacted a really important rule. There was a gentleman named Joseph Buffy who had pled guilty to rape and burglary. And while he was pleading guilty to those charges, the prosecution actually had exculpatory DNA evidence that showed that Mr. Buffy couldn't possibly have been the perpetrator. This case, he, for 13 years, Joseph Buffy, tried to retract his plea, get a new trial, and prosecutors forcefully opposed that. Eventually, the case went to the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals, and they held, very importantly, that Brady evidence, such as the DNA evidence involved in Mr. Buffy's case, must be disclosed to criminal defendants in the state of West Virginia pre-plea. What's important about that is currently material exculpatory evidence Brady evidence, in other words, does not have to be disclosed by prosecutors on any particular timeline under the federal rules and constitutional law. In states that, of course, have to also follow Brady, there's a variation depending on the individual's jurisdiction's rules. But conceivably, it's okay to provide Brady shortly before trial or on the eve of trial. The Supreme Court has actually held that there's no requirement to produce Brady evidence pre-plea. And West Virginia rejected that and set a much higher standard. And we think that that was a move in the right direction. The other state I kind of want to touch on is uh, North Carolina. There was a gentleman there, Alan Gell, who had, was charged with a capital murder and was sentenced to death, in fact, and was on North Carolina's death row. As it turned out, post-plea, post his sentence, there was really extraordinary exculpatory and impeachment evidence that it withheld from the state, somewhere close to 17 or 18 different witness statements saying that they had seen the victim alive at a later date when Mr. Gell couldn't possibly have been the perpetrator because he himself was in prison. He was incarcerated for on a different charge that had been withheld, as well as some significant impeachment evidence. This was a really famous case. Mr. Gell was eventually exonerated. And in the process, North Carolina made several reforms. They went to open criminal discovery in 2004. And in 2011, importantly, they enacted a statute which required law enforcement officers and crime labs to disclose evidence to the defense as well. So not just what the prosecutor has in his individual file, but also the entire investigatory arm of the state has to disclose relevant information to the defense. And North Carolina has now gone so far to actually make it a crime codified a statute that criminalizes the failure to comply with these provisions. The last point I'll make about North Carolina is what was interesting, Mr. Gell was able to actually get the evidence that was withheld from him in his post-conviction proceedings that he was not entitled to during his either his trial or direct appeal or anything like that because North Carolina had a statute on the books that allowed folks who were convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death to get way more information and get much better discovery from the state than folks who hadn't been convicted yet, who had just been charged. And many states have statutes that allow 
far greater discovery for folks on habeas than they do at trial. And we think that's backwards as well, because you could sort of correct the problem on the front end instead of maybe have somebody like Mr. Gell sit in jail for decades before he's able to get access to the information when he finally has exhausted his direct appeal remedies and is on habeas. So he had way more rights on habeas under the North Carolina system that existed at that time than he did at trial or uh, pretrial in his case and from the jump. What's been the experience in the states that have adopted these discovery rules? Have you seen better luck in these states with defense counsel fighting flawed forensic science? That's the open question, and I'm glad that you asked that, because I think that the next study that needs to be done here and the follow-up is to see if this has actually been effective. What I can tell you is that the criminal defense bar feels that this is extremely helpful. So anecdotally, folks feel that they're getting a much fairer shake and having a much better opportunity to contest evidence. And by the way, just being way more informed at the plea stage. Again, anecdotally, it seems that defense counsel in these jurisdictions are very happy. I know here in West Virginia, the defense bar is thrilled by the fact that they know whether the state has Brady or produced Brady before they advise their client on a plea, which is a huge deal because it's so difficult to walk that back. So the defense bar here is very, very happy about that development. It would be very interesting to see if the statistics bear out the anecdotal commentary on that. Final question for you. And normally my question is about further research, but you just answered that question. My final question to you is whether these discovery rules in the criminal context are likely to extend to other states. In my discussion with Sandy Thompson last year, when we talked about independent crime labs, she basically reached the conclusion that oftentimes it's very difficult to get the kind of reform necessary for an independent lab unless there is a specific crisis in a particular jurisdiction. And many of the stories that you've told about criminal discovery rules is that those have also been prompted by a specific high-profile case. Is that going to be the fate of these rules, that it really requires some kind of scandal before they're implemented? Or are you more hopeful that they'll be more broadly adopted? I think that, unfortunately, I'm going to go with that we're going to need a lot of scandal. I think that North Carolina is a great example of that with Mr. Gell's case and also subsequent cases. I mean, one of the things that really inflamed folks in North Carolina is that the two prosecutors who had withheld the evidence in Mr. Gell's case received very lenient treatment from North Carolina's disciplinary board for attorneys. In fact, they received such lenient treatment, which was a reprimand, basically the lowest level punishment you could receive, that a lot of people believe that in the Duke rape case, where Mike Nifong was disbarred by this exact same disciplinary board, that Nifong was sort of paying the price for the public outrage over what had happened with the Gell prosecutors. So the law had changed in North Carolina. The reason why we knew what Mr. Nifong had withheld from the defense in the Duke lacrosse players case was because of these statutes. So we got a good result there. And the board threw the book at him. It just goes to show you that North Carolina had run the gamut on these scandals. So I really think that what it takes is a real life example on the ground for states to make these maneuvers. On the other hand, I guess the one thing that we could say is we could look at Georgia and say Georgia was the 44th state to adopt the federal rules of evidence. And at some point, maybe states just don't like to be in the minority and they start to move in that direction. That's certainly what's happened with Daubert over time uh, and adoption of the federal rules of evidence. So perhaps states will learn from their neighbors. But I think the path forward is more clear where there are cases that really outrage the public and a sense of justice in any individual jurisdiction. 
Well, Jen, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about the Daubert Gap and criminal discovery rules. It was uh, great having you on the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. One of the longstanding mysteries in the expert evidence field has been the willingness of courts to impose strict admissibility standards in civil cases, specifically toxic tort cases, and their unwillingness to do the same in criminal cases. As I noted in the interview, you would think that the rules would be exactly the opposite. The striking case of Georgia's admissibility rules offers a rather cynical take on the causes of the Daubert gap. For Jen, at least in the case of Georgia, the disparity in the statutory scheme seems to be the result of lobbying and is a matter of politics, not principle. But whether we're talking about Georgia or the Daubert gap more generally, I find even the cynical explanation hard to believe. I fully understand how prosecutors in a given case might argue for a looser standard in their zeal to prosecute defendants that they believe to be dangerous, but I find it more difficult to imagine how prosecutors could argue with a straight face against a Daubert reliability standard as a general matter. I mean, how do you argue in favor of unreliable evidence? Perhaps the better explanation, as is often the case, is inertia. Georgia has long had a lax rule governing expert testimony. And other jurisdictions prior to Daubert also by and large let in experts without significant scrutiny. To change that status quo, as is often the case in the law, requires an enormous amount of effort. The product's liability defense bar, being repeat players with considerable resources, they were able to overcome those barriers. The criminal defense bar, by contrast, wasn't so successful. Only in the wake of scandal and political outrage, much like the wrongful conviction cases that sparked the adoption of criminal discovery rules, only in those cases might you see changes in how forensics are admitted in court. Finally, I wanted to touch on Jen's emphasis on criminal discovery. Since the inception of this podcast, we've heard many scholars focus on the process of evidence production as opposed to the more traditional version of evidence exclusion. Jen's article is one part of this emerging trend, a trend that I think has a great deal of potential. After all, the process of proof is not just about what you can admit or exclude, what you might term the filter. It's also about what you put into the filter in the first place. And focusing on discovery as an evidentiary concept, rather than merely a procedural one, has the potential to revolutionize our field. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Park Ranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.